you would open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. It's a biographical message for the Apostle Paul as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table tonight. And there's a lot going on in this passage that I want to try to bring to your attention. I wrestled in my mind about whether or not we should just look at one verse tonight, um, just verse 7, or if we should take the whole paragraph. And we're going to try to take the whole paragraph, but if we don't make it, we'll come back at a different communion service some other time. Let me read you this whole section, verse 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The song we just sang has this line in it by the Gettys, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. And... Unless you're a Christian with a kind of a Christian worldview and a Christian anthropology, that seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? I mean, two wonders here that stand out is our worth that we have by being made in the image of God and our unworthiness. That God has declared that we have value and the fact that because of our sin that has separated us from God, we recognize that we are not worthy or we don't have enough value or merit to approach God. So in a sense, the opposite problem of other religions in the world, other religions in the world teach that that God is exalted and mysterious and unknown and you have to accumulate your own worth in order to bridge the gap. You know, you're the one working your way to God and so it's God who's declaring you're not worthy and the, the worker of the religion is declaring that he is worthy and trying to get enough merit. And Christianity just flips that on its head, doesn't it? Where God comes to us And God looks at us and calls us, as we read tonight in Hebrews 2, calls us brothers and says that we're his his family and he reaches out to us and he identifies with us and he he goes to the least of these, he goes to the sinners and the the tax collectors and the the prostitutes and the, the lepers and he, in a sense, degrades himself by who he associates with, all the while telling us that we have value because of the person whose image we're in, that we're made in the image of God. And that when you understand that by faith, you know, the person who says, well, that's great. I have enough worth to approach God. They're, you know, they're not listening. (laughs) But the person who listens to what Jesus says recognizes their own unworthiness. (laughs) So it's a marvelous paradox that the more you know of Christ, the less worthy you feel to be known by him. And that's the the nature of the Christian gospel. Now, I said that this is very 
autobiographical from Paul here. This is about Paul's own ministry. And so it's this, you can picture the nesting dolls here, you know, at the, the outside of this, this is about the Apostle Paul and how he's under attack in his ministry in Corinth. And then the next layer of that nesting doll, you know, inside of that speaks of, of pastors in general. This is very much authors and commentators have often noted the second Corinthians would, is rightly called a pastoral epistle. It's about Paul as a pastor. And so the next layer in the nesting doll here is the perspective of a pastor on his own role in the ministry. And then underneath that would be the perspective of anybody who's trying to minister for Christ. And then the heart of this, the center of this is every Christian, how this, these truths press on us from all sides. And I guess there's even one more in the middle of that, how Jesus embodied these truths. So those are the layers as you unpack this and move from the outside in. But you have to start on the outside. Because that's where this, Paul is writing. He's writing here from his heart, and you have to get your mind around the afflictions that he's facing here. The Corinthians are his church. They're his people. He, he loves them. He would give anything for them. But he left them for, for the mission fields, and they have turned against him. They have believed false teaching. They've started following false practices. Their spiritual maturity has been regressing. And so Paul writes to them appealing. He's hearing about the struggles that are going through. And maybe struggles isn't even the right word. He's hearing about their compromises and the, the sin that is just rampant in the church. And so he writes them the book of 1 Corinthians, which they do not receive well. And it creates a faction in the church, divides in the church, where some are responding to Paul and some are not. And the false teachers take the book of 1 Corinthians and another letter that Paul wrote that's not inspired, not canonical. And they take those and they're playing them off against each other and they're playing them off against Paul. And it's a difficult time there. They attacked Paul by highlighting his personal defects. I mean, they weren't making up lies about him, like outright, but they were going after him by attacking his, as I said, personal defects, which is something that every, every person has. You all have strengths and weaknesses. And then the same was true with Paul. But in the ministry, the, Paul is up front. He's in front of people, and he's leading them. And he's, in a sense, he's acting as the shepherd of them. And so his deficiencies are, of course, magnified. They're on public display. And then inside of that, they're not just attacking his deficiencies, but they're attacking his strengths as if they were deficiencies. And I'm sure you understand that basic dynamic of human nature. Somebody's strength is often their, their weakness or is always their weakness, right? If, and this is so true with pastors. You know, people say that the problem with that pastor is he's too dogmatic. He's too clear. He's too forceful in what he says. He's just too confident in what the word of God says. He's just too dogmatic. Well, the flip side of that would be a pastor who's not clear not dogmatic, who's shrugging and saying, ah, we're all kind of in this together, right? And so if you had the choice of that, you would likely choose a pastor who's clear. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's, he's preaching. You would choose a pastor who's clear. So now imagine taking that strength of clarity and conviction and flipping it into an accusation of, of weakness, flipping it and contorting it into what's disqualifying about him. And that's exactly what they did with the Apostle Paul. You see this in chapter 10, verse 10, where they come after him saying, oh, yeah, you're great, your letters make a lot of sense. Let's see you say it in person. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, they were calling him a coward because he was out of his love and affection appealing to them. And they were like, that's, that's, if you really loved us, you would show up. 
He says, I love you so much I can't show up. It would break your heart. It would break my heart. Oh, you're a coward. You love us so much you're a coward. You love us so much you're too, you're too tender. You're too soft. One commentator said if the Corinthians had their way, they would go three pa- through three pastors. They would fire their first one and say he's, he's not a man. They'd fire their second one and say he's not a pastor. And they'd fire their third one saying he's neither a man nor a pastor. <laughs> and working down the line. And that's where Paul is here. They're attacking his leadership. They're attacking his, in a sense, his masculinity, his, his dogmatism, his clarity, his forcefulness. They're coming after him as if that's a weakness. And then when they, he appeals to his own affection for them, they go after that as if that's the weakness. And so Paul is in a very precarious spot here. How do you defend yourself without defending yourself? Because, I mean, nothing is more demoralizing to a pastor than trying to defend himself. He doesn't want to defend himself. Now, why wouldn't he want to defend himself? Jog your mind back to how I began tonight. Because we recognize our own unworthiness. We recognize our own lack of fitness for the ministry. We understand this is, to use Paul's word in 2 Corinthians, we have this, this privilege of grace. It's a gift to us to serve in the church. And so to defend your integrity and to defend your, your actual gifting in the ministry is something Paul cannot bring himself to do. Because that would be elevating himself as if his own fitness for ministry is what made the Corinthians function as a church. But if Paul rolls over and says, okay, false teachers, have your way with the church. You want drunkenness as communion? Go for it. <laughs> you want speaking in tongues chaos all over the place to be the norm? Have at it, guys. I'll be in Ephesus. <laughs> so how do you defend yourself without defending yourself? And that's what 2 Corinthians is about. I mean, 2 Corinthians is a masterfully constructed letter for that reason. You understand that the credibility of the gospel is seen in the deficiency of its messengers. At the same time, you understand because of the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the messenger of the gospel has to have a life of integrity and has to demonstrate spiritual gifting and aptitude. And that right there is the paradox. That right there is the crunch. That's what Paul is talking about here, that he has this surpassing treasure that has been given to him, but it is inside of a jar of clay. And Paul is that jar of clay. He is frail. He knows that. He has physical deformities that if we had more time, we'd highlight those. He references them later in the book, in the book of Galatians. He's got a demonically inspired false teacher in chapter 12, or we'll meet him if we ever get that far in this, this book. And you just understand what he's going through. He is afflicted. He does have deficiencies. He's begging God for, to remove this false teacher from the church, but God's not answering the prayer so that he grows in grace. I mean, Paul is very well aware that he needs more humility in his life. The Lord is pointing that out to him. And so what does he do? The weaker the messenger, the stronger the message. Okay? There's a forceful gospel. The weaker the person who brings the... This is why 12 disciples from Galilee. 11 from Galilee. I mean, nothing good comes from Galilee. Fishermen. He did not recruit the erudite. He did not recruit the philosophers. He did not recruit the Pharisees. 
He recruited the, recruited the nobodies, Jesus did, for his message, entrusting it to the nobodies. So remember in the book of Acts when they hear the, the preaching of Peter and they hear about the apostles and they scratch their heads and say, this cannot be. I mean, these are unlearned fishermen. And so you understand that the strength of the message is highlighted, underlined, underscored by the deficiency of the messenger. And so what happens then when the messenger, who by his own confession is deficient, has to defend himself? It is a very tough needle to thread. And that's where Paul finds himself. Now that's true, more biographically here, that's true for every pastor. It's not confined to the unique circumstances of Corinth, although 2 Corinthians 4 is unique in that situation, but it is true of every pastor that your weaknesses are magnified. I'm so thankful for Emmanuel Bible Church and that you guys don't magnify my weaknesses because love covers and you're an eager church to, to love and an eager church to cover. But you read many biographies about pastors, you talk to many pastors who go through their life, and this is, this is the world they, most of them live in. It's the typical pastoral experience is that your weaknesses are magnified, they're highlighted, they're talked about, they're discussed, and in, the hard part is that in many cases, the weaknesses you would perceive as strengths. In many cases, your own strengths are being called out as weaknesses, and and you think, well, that's what the, the church needs, but the church doesn't like it. And so do you defend it and you say, no, I am actually good enough for you. I am actually what you need. Or do you just roll on out of there? And I know it's hard for this church to appreciate because this church has not been like that. I mean, this church is a very small number of pastors for the most part have stayed here for a very long time. So it's easy to overlook the fact how unusual Emmanuel Bible Church is in the church world. But the example of Paul and the example of most pastors does not match IBC. Most pastors go through this tension where, oh, you know, you don't want to listen to, you don't want to listen to that guy because he's, all he cares about is preaching. You don't want to listen to that pastor because he's too theological and it's used like it's a bad word. You don't want to listen to that pastor because he would just rather be with his theology books. Ooh. Could you imagine what kind of weird pastor would rather be with theology books? Apparently they're out there. But it gets twisted and played off against. And so what is the pastor supposed to say? No, I actually don't like theology that much. I'm trying to work on it. <laughs> All right. You know, and of course, pastors need to grow in love for people. But outside of like the world where guys just can't find another job and so they become a pastor, I'm not talking about those guys. Outside of those guys, of course, pastors love people. I mean, what, what do you think drew them to the ministry? It's not time where they can sit around and read. It's a love for people. So how do, they def how do you defend that you really do love? It'd be like your kids telling you, I don't think you love me because you discipline me. And you're like, well, I discipline you. It would be easier not to, trust me. I do so because I love you. But then how do you go down that road as a parent? How do you convince your kids that you actually do love them? Once you're having that conversation, you recognize the very existence of that conversation demonstrates you've lost, right? 
Now go inside to the next level of that shell. This is true of anybody who's ministering for the Lord, anybody who's trying to evangelize. He says, I can't believe your gospel message because look at the sin in your life. You're like, that's the point. (laughs) It's exactly why I care about evangelism, because of the sin in my life. Or I could never go to church. There's so many hypocrites there. Ah! Of course, there's the tried answer of, so there's room for one more. (laughs) But of course, there's the other side of that coin of, I mean, you just know if there was a church with perfect people, you would not want to go there either. You wouldn't fit in. And so you're stuck. And how do you defend the gospel then? No, it is okay for you know, slacker, loser villains to believe the gospel too. It's just an awkward conversation. <laughs> but you know who demonstrates this better than anybody else? Of course, is Christ. Well, let me give you a little bit of an outline to guide us as we go through tonight. I want to talk about how you see these tre- this treasure in jars of clay. Let me give you three points. First, the truth, which is the paradox of power. Second will be the test, which is the proof of persecution. You'll get all these again later. And third is the template, which is the power of Jesus' pattern. So you'll see the truth, which is the paradox of power. The test, which is the proof of persecution. And thirdly, the template, which is the power of Jesus' pattern. First, the truth. This is in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure that we possess is the gospel message. It's clear in the... the, uh, Uh, context here in verse 6, God says, let the light shine out of darkness. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the presence of Jesus Christ that we proclaim in verse 5, Jesus Christ as Lord. That is the treasure. The God of this world has blinded non-believers to the truth. Non-believers cannot see the truth. They don't understand the truth of the gospel. They're blinded by it, but we have it. And it's inside of us and it shines and God made it shine. Now, it's the imagery of a light up there in verse six where God causes the light to shine. They didn't have the recessed lighting back then. They didn't have the chandeliers back then. They had a light that had a container, a receptacle, usually a jar of some kind. Or, and then again, Jesus makes fun of this, lighting it and putting a bushel over the top. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Don't light it and hide it under your bed. Doesn't really work. You light it and you put it up so it can illuminate. That's how the lights worked. And we have that light. And so the, the question that would be in the reader's mind at the end of verse six is, okay, where is that light placed? We understand that Jesus is the light of the world. That makes sense. God comes to the earth as a human being and he's the light of the world. He's the city on the hill. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world, but they put their lights under, under bushels and whatnot. <laughs> and so Jesus is there as the true light and he's the magnet and he's drawing people to him. And now he's gone. And where's the light now? And the answer, of course, is in us. It's the, the theology of the, you know, the great church hymn, This is the Light of Mine. I'm going to let it shine. You know the song? You better know or I'll have DC come sing it right now. And, and he would, too. I know it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> That's where the light dwells now. What a strange change. Israel being the light of the world, I got it. They got the law. They had angels and such. The temple. Jesus being the light of the world, he's the second member of the Trinity. That makes sense. And now the light's in us. That's the paradox right there. And this phrase, jars of clay, co-opted by a 1990s Christian band. <laughs> it's, a, it's one word in the Greek. It's a common word. 
It's these jars, they use them for everything. They're disposable, they break, they're not the metal jars, they had metal canisters, they had metal containers of different kinds, it's not what it's talking about, they had copperware and such, it's not what this is, this is an actual jar that is made in a, and it's, it's burned in a, in a fire and comes out, they're very breakable, very cheap, kindergartner's art project. When I was in elementary school, we made ashtrays, that's not allowed anymore. I don't know what they make now, and well, they shut down all the art classes, but imagine the world with the art classes where they make stuff. That's what this is. I mean, it's something that a kid could make in a period at school. And what do you do with these? Well, you do whatever you need to with them. Sometimes you can put your lights in them. Sometimes you put your water in them. You bring your water into your house in them. You bring your water out of your house into them, if you know what I mean. And that's the most common use, honestly, trash and refuse. And they pitch it out. And they break all the time. And you wouldn't put something worthwhile generally in one of these jars because it's got other uses. But you could put something worthwhile in it because it's a very common jar. It's just so common that they have a lot of other uses. They're always breakable. You know this in the Tupperware world. I've learned this. I didn't understand this as a single guy, but as a married guy, I understand this. You have two kinds of Tupperware, those that you give out to people and yes, you will bring it back to church and leave it in my box the next day or those that you give out to people and you don't ever want to see it again. Those are the categories and you're low on the second kind, you order Chinese food and you get more. <laughs> well, this is that second kind here. It's just a, a jar that you could use anything you want to for and if it breaks, it's not a big deal. If you give somebody water in your jar, it, you're okay if he keeps the jar. You don't need it back. <laughs> What Paul's saying is that he is that kind of jar. So notice his depreciation here. He's, this is how, remember I said he's trying to thread this needle. He's comparing himself to that kind of jar. He's not putting himself up on a, a pedestal here kind of thing. He's saying, I'm not the, the jar that's exalted. I am the, the debased kind of jar. But the trick here is I have a treasure inside of me. The treasure, of course, is the gospel that's been placed with me. Now, why would God do that? And that's the second part of verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The same phrase Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 2.4. It's not translated this way in that verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. You can look it up on your own if you want some time. Just jot it down now. But there he's talking about how gospel ministers are this kind of jar. Just by virtue of being a gospel minister, you're the breakable jar. You have the, the precious gospel, and you're, you're giving it out here. Though in 2 Corinthians, it's more about Paul in particular. What a great word picture, isn't it? I mean, what gives the jar its value? Not the jar. And what gives the minister of the gospel his value? Not the minister. The message he has. We're listening to a biography right now with our kids on uh, Lottie Moon. Very interesting story. Uh, and she, when... Union soldiers, there were rumors after the end of the Civil War that Union soldiers were going to raid her property and she had slaves and so she thought she would be a target for the raid. She got his burlap sack and she took all of their silverware and all of their family jewels, a very, very wealthy family, the Moon family, and down by Danville in Virginia and put in a burlap sack and <clears throat> went out and buried it in their apple orchard. Put a mark on the tree to find it again and went back out after the Union troops had gone away, could not find it again. And she goes the rest of her life without knowing what happened to that burlap sack. And so somewhere, Tom Coles were here tonight, he'd be excited about this story. 
metal detecting. Somewhere down, down there is a burlap sack and an apple orchard. Or somebody took it already. It's possible, likely, one of the slaves saw her hide it and, and, and took it. I mean, who knows? But there's priceless treasures buried in an apple orchard down there. And imagine being the person who finds it. It's a burlap sack. And you just look at it and sticking out of the ground in an apple orchard. But that would be the most valuable discovery you would ever make in your life. <laughs> That's the image here. The power of the gospel, it's hidden inside of you. You have value because of what's in you. Well, that's the truth. It's this paradox of power. It's something fragile and breakable. You could say it this way. It's the crack that lets the light in, huh? Or the crack that lets the light out. That your own deficiencies is what magnifies the gospel. This is why Christians don't need to hide their deficiencies. Of course, you're ashamed of sin, and that's, that's right. It should be that way. But you're not trying to hide it. It's the crack that lets the light out. That's the truth. Well, secondly, the test. Secondly, the test. And this here is where we find really the heart of this passage, which is the proof of persecution. And this is what Paul is going through here. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And he's going to go through this little list and rattle off something he's faced as a, as a minister of the gospel. He has similar lists in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 6. It becomes a good one with the shipwrecks and all that. Chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians, chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians. He keeps reminding the Corinthians of this. <laughs> Philippians 4, he talks about some of his persecutions. This one is an interesting list, though, in verses 8 through 10, because he uses different metaphors. These are different idioms and hard to recognize in English, so just take my word for it. He borrows words from the world of wrestling. He borrows words from the world of hunting. He borrows words from military combat, and he's using all of these metaphors. And he says here in verse 8, we're afflicted in every way. That word afflicted is flipsa in Greek, and it means pressured. It's this idea that you're in a pressure cooker, and it's cooking down on you. It's condensing you. It's pushing you. It's this idea of physical force. And now nobody's actually pushing him here. He's writing a letter. But what he's saying that surrounding him is all of the demands of the ministry. It's the complaints of the Corinthians. It's the, the excitement of different opportunities. And even, even excitement can act as a pressure because you want to go do this and bring the gospel there, but you got to get your, your financing in order and all this. That's what his life is. And he says, I am afflicted. I'm this pressured from every single side. And it's a pun here in the Greek. It's an idiom in the Greek that he's pressured but not crushed. And I like that the English translation gives you crushed there because that's this idea. He's being pressed and pressed and pressed, but not crushed. Star Wars with the garbage compactor going in, but shuts off just in time. I would never use a movie reference, though. You can forget about that. He was hampered on every side, but what does it mean he wasn't crushed? He always had the opportunity to be faithful. He always had a way out always had a way out. He's perplexed, but not driven to despair. Now that phrase, perplexed, this is a, a, a mental phrase. It's, some translations give it bewildered, but never at her wit's end. And it is, again, it's another pun in Greek. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. That kind of loses the wordplay, though. I like bewildered, but not at her wit's end. In other words, we're confused, but we're not insane. 
Well, one translation, we're near desperate, but not wholly desperate, or at a loss, but not completely baffled. Murray Harris, who is a professor at Paternity Seminary, he writes, at a loss, but not lost. And that brings out the pun element of it. I'm at a loss, but I'm not lost. And that's what he's going for here. He's confused by what's happening. He's perplexed by what the Corinthians are doing, but he hasn't lost his way. It's a dark night, but he sees the light still. That's his test. He's persecuted in verse 9, but not forsaken. The word persecuted there, that's not the normal word for persecuted. This is a word from the hunting world. They would hunt animals with dogs, even back then, and this is the word for the dog that was trapped. This is the word, or not the dog, the animal that was trapped. This is the word for the cornered animal. He's got put in a cave or he's up a tree and he has nowhere to go. That's this word. So Paul's saying here, notice why it's translated persecuted. The idea is that his opponents are after him, they're hounding him, and they've got him cornered, and that's the way he's felt his whole ministry, but notice this, he's always had an escape. There's always been a way out. My wife and I this past summer went hiking in Colorado to this place called Devil's Causeway. It's, it's up there. It's, I don't know, like 10,000 feet or something and up in northwestern Colorado and it narrows down to this little passageway that's high up. I mean, you got an 800 foot drop off on each side and the middle channel there is about four feet wide in places. And sheepdogs will drive sheep across it because sheep were not smart. Side note about why the Bible calls it sheep. (laughs) But deer will not cross it. Elk will not cross it. And there's all kinds of stories the shepherds have of, of the dogs chasing the deer and getting the deer cornered there at the causeway, but the deer will not go across it. The deer will let the dogs get close and then jump over the dogs. (laughs) They would rather risk their lives and go across that little causeway. And that's Paul's image here, that he is trapped in. He's hemmed in. There's never an escape for him, but there's also never a time where he doesn't know how to jump out. There's never a time where he doesn't ultimately end up getting away. And he contrasts it here, persecuted, trapped, with the word forsaken. So this is not a pun. These are two very different words. Persecuted is the animal hunt word. Forsaken is a biblical word. It's the word Jesus uses when he, on the cross where he asks, Father, why have you forsaken me? Of course, this is a Psalm 22 reference. And that's Paul's life. He's trapped, but he's never felt forsaken by God. What a reminder that what Jesus felt on the cross, Paul is not, he's comparing himself to Jesus in some ways, but not that way. He never got to the point where he says, Lord, I feel like you've forsaken me. He feels, he feels trapped in, but he always knows Lord will get him out. I mean, I, you can't help but think of his time in Philippi. Remember the demonically possessed woman hounded him and hounded him. The slave girl hounded him. Finally, when she was healed and delivered, the people who fancied her themselves her owners. I wouldn't say you could ever rightfully own another person, but they fancied themselves her owners. They hounded the authorities until they got Paul arrested. Paul then gets beaten in jail, put on trial, beaten again, thrown in jail again. And you would think that's the time where you feel hemmed in, right? That's where you're trapped. Remember what happens. Earthquake, jail door opens, jailer gets converted, jailer's family gets converted. (laughs) Philippian church begins. That's what he means here. I'm so trapped, but I've always never been forsaken. Now he goes to an athletic term, the boxing term. 
in verse 9, struck down. This is a, a, an Olympic term. They had Olympic boxing back then. And this is the term for getting, we use it now. now the, the, you know, he goes down, but he's not knocked out. I wish they would have kept that in the translation. Instead, they do struck down, but not destroyed. But it's a boxing word. And you know the imagery. The guy is down, but he's not out. <laughs> and that's what Paul says. I've been knocked down, but I am knocked. I am not knocked out. I still have my bearings. One translator says, beaten to my knees, but not to my grave. Think of Paul's time in Lystra. There, they stoned him to death. Remember, they thought that they actually killed him with rocks. They dragged his body outside the city and left it there for the vultures to get. And disciples came, I don't know, threw water in his face, and he wasn't really dead. He lived and got to continue his missionary journey. That's what he's talking about here. Remember that time they, I mean, Paul's, you gotta love Paul. Remember that time I was stoned to death, but not really. That's been his life. Romans 8, 36, this is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why is Paul going through this? It's for the sake of the gospel. That's the test. And notice here, just like the clay from the fire, doesn't break right away. It, the fire actually hardens it. That's what this is. This is all showing that the power of the gospel that's inside the pot can withstand this stuff. Thirdly, the template. What's happening behind this? Forgive the spelling error there. The template. The power of Jesus' pattern. It passed spell check somehow, but anyway. This is the power of Jesus' pattern. And you pick this up here in verse 10. Why does Paul do this? Because he's always caring about the body, in the body, the death of Jesus. So what he means by that is he's this clay pot. In him is the light of the gospel, the treasure of the gospel. But that is not all good all the time. Because in addition to having the treasure of the gospel, he has the death of Jesus also. The light of the gospel attracts persecution. The light of the gospel is, it attracts the opponents of the gospel like flies to the light, so to speak here. And so he has the death of Jesus with him. He, he has the resurrection of Jesus, but he also has the death of Jesus. And it's always with him. And Jesus said this, if you love me, you will face persecution. The world hated me, they will hate you also. A teacher is not, a, a student is not above his teacher. And that's what Paul is living out. He knows he always has the body within the body of the death of Jesus. But that's, it's okay because in that, the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So the more he's persecuted, the more you see the truth of the gospel. They're both true. That's why he's perplexed but not crushed. He's not eliminated. And you see it with Jesus. They killed him, but he resurrected. And why is this important? The life of Jesus is manifested, made evident in his own body. And he's not talking spiritually here. He's talking in a real physical sense. The more he's persecuted, the greater the gospel is seen. This is Colossians 2 kind of language, that you're filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And you think, there's nothing lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Well, yes, there is. There's the suffering of the messengers who will bear the message. That's his image here. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. It's repeating the same thing. We live by Christ, we attract persecution, 
The world, Paul says earlier to the Corinthians that we're the stench of death to the world. So the life of Jesus is manifest in our body. In 2 Corinthians 6, he says we're unknown and yet well-known to God. As dying, but behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. There's that, that jar of clay analogy. And he says, I have nothing good of my own, but I have everything. Everything. And I say this is a pattern of Jesus because understand when you get to the heart of this, this is what Jesus did. He had 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. He had the riches of heaven. In fact, I think I have that verse for you. You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He was exalted and he came to earth. He took on the body. I mean, what gave his human body value? It was in the image of God, of course, what made him different. That the second member of the Trinity, that God had dwelled in him from riches to poverty. That's the pattern. And that's the pattern that you have in your life as well. If you believe in the gospel, you are a treasure of clay. You have an identity that's in Christ. You, by yourself, in the image of God. So you have every human being, as I said this morning, has inherent value, worth, dignity, and honor, regardless of their relationship with Christ, just because they're in God's image. But that only goes so far, especially because it's marred by the fall. Our tents are decaying. People die. Though we're in the image of God, we decay, and we sin, and we harm ourselves, and we eventually die and go back to the dirt. But for a believer, you're decaying, dying, going back to the dirt body, for now as a jar of clay, it has inside of it the surpassing value of the gospel. And on top of that, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is in the context here in chapter 3, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, adding more value to you. It's not based upon you, but based upon the gifts of Christ. I chose this passage tonight because it's a communion evening, and I, I want you to understand that this same principle is true in communion. What you hold in your hand when you take communion is the bread, the cup with the, the juice, and what gives it its value, what gives it its identity, is not simply the external features of it. You're about it giant, you know? What gives them their value is what they represent, that he was rich and he became poor. He became poor so his body would be broken. He became poor so his blood would be spilled. That's the poverty. This is the mystery of the communion service, the celebration of the communion. You think, is the communion service, the communion service be like a funeral or like a celebration? Both. <laughs> Because we rejoice that he was rich and became poor. Well, that seems like you should mourn about that. Well, it's for our benefit. Well, we should rejoice about that. Well, we'll carry about the body of Jesus and his death with us wherever we go. Oh, it's, we should mourn that. Eh, except he rose from the grave and we carry about the life of Jesus with us too. We're perplexed, but we're not abandoned. Tonight, as we come to the Lord's table together, understand this, this special of what Jesus has done for us in giving us his life sanctifying us by the ministry of his spirit, changing us so that we can be followers of him. If you've never given your life to Christ, then this is a treasure that you don't possess. 
And so communion wouldn't be suitable for you to take. But if you have given your life to Christ, understand as we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, we're rejoicing in the frailty and the weakness of the bread, but in the riches of Christ. Lord, we're grateful that you have given us this treasure that surpasses understanding. We're not worth possessing it or magnifying it, and yet you have chosen us to do just that. We're grateful for Paul that he defended himself in a way by defending the integrity of the gospel. We embrace this as a church. We embrace that it is the broken people that need to be made whole by Christ. It's the sinners that need a savior. It's the spiritually dead that need spiritual life. And we're grateful that the riches of Christ can be ours through faith in his death and resurrection. We give you thanks for him in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.